the, uh, the last day of the NFL season. Uh, playoffs start next week. Uh, the college football championship is tomorrow night. Uh, it will be a really boring game. It's unfortunate that the best team got left out. Um, so today, in honor of all that, I'm going to use a sports ball illustration. Uh, I, don't, I try not to use a lot of sports ball illustrations because not everyone understands sports ball. I'm looking at Brandon, by the way. Um, so uh, I've been holding on to this illustration. I've had this illustration for a while. I've been holding on to it. And it's about a quarterback. His name's Cam Newton. Anybody heard of Cam Newton? Cam Newton uh, was a college stud. Uh, he played at Florida before he stole a laptop and transferred to Auburn. And he transferred to Auburn, and he was there, and uh, he won a national championship at, at Auburn. I think it might be the last time Auburn was relevant. And um, I wish David was here. <laughs> he was my, my other person who would love me poking at Auburn. Um, Anyway, he wins this national championship, and man, there are times throughout that season that Cam Newton just puts the whole team on his back, and it's like 1v11, and he's just a stud. And so he ends up being the number one draft pick overall in 2011 NFL draft, and he goes to the Carolina Panthers. Now, if you're the number one overall draft pick, that means that your team that got the number one pick wasn't very good, right? And, and the way that works, most of the time, like it could be, that means they played 16 games, they were 0-16. And, and so Cam Newton goes to this team that's not very good. And man, the, the truth is, uh, he's, he's not real good in front of a camera in that, not that he, I mean, he sounds fun, he just is like a wild card and a maverick and says stuff that's like often not popular. And so he doesn't get the mic put in front of him a ton uh, his uh, rookie year. But 12 games in, ESPN got a mic in front of him. And an ESPN exclusive, this is what he said. And they had not been doing well. They had been getting crushed. He says this. What happens when you take a lion out of the safari... And try to take him into your place of residence and make him a house pet. It ain't going to happen. That's the type of person that I am. I'm the lion. The house that I'm in is somewhat of a tarnished house where losing is accepted. But I'm trying to change that. Whether I'm going to have to turn that house into a safari or I'm just going to have to get out of the house. Now, what he says next. I was watching this live. And what he said next caused my jaw to drop and hit the floor. I could not believe he said this. This is like leadership 101, do not do. He says this, to clarify, I'm not trying to leave this place. I'm just trying to get everybody else on my level. Now, if I'm his lineman the next week, I'm letting him through. It's going to be the NFL sack record. Dude is getting crushed. He's prideful, and he's arrogant, and I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I'm going to let him get crushed. Now, I don't know, I don't know uh, what happened, but I sat there, and I watched it, and I went, oh, he's a horrible leader. A good leader would never say that. He's a horrible leader. Man, he's prideful. This isn't going to end well. And did it end well? Well, what do we know about Cam Newton? Well, we know this, that in 2016... 
uh, Cam Newton did get his team to a Super Bowl. And they played the Denver Broncos in Peyton, and the Broncos whooped them good. And that was the last time he went to a Super Bowl. It wasn't long after that he was playing quarterback on the couch, just like you and I, armchair quarterback. And what was said of, what was said of Cam Newton over, over and over, if you were watching ESPN, you're watching the talking heads, they were going, why isn't a team picking up Cam Newton? Why isn't a team making him QB1? He refused to be QB2, by the way. And so why is it, and, and often they would say, look, there's, 30, there's 32 quarterbacks, and you've got this injured quarterback, and they're playing some no-name from some other school. Why don't they go after Cam Newton? There, there aren't 32 other quarterbacks better than Cam Newton. You hear, hear this over and over and over, yet he would not get picked up. Why? Because Cam Newton believed his own hype. He heard it over and over and over, and he believed his own hype. Now, here's the danger. That can happen to us. No, no, you're not going to win a national championship. No, you're not going to play in the NFL. But you can believe your own hype. You can get to the point where you're looking at yourself and you're thinking, like, I'm the lion. You get like this few little successes in life. You get some wins and like all of a sudden you get, as we would say in my household growing up, my mom would look at me and said, you're getting big for your britches, son. And we can do that. We can believe our own hype. We can get prideful and arrogant. And we can look at ourselves and think that we are more than we are. Our pride can get the best of us. Pride is a sin that will lead you down a horrible path, a path that you do not want to go down. The opposite of pride is humility. And as we open up God's Word today, this is the big truth that I want you to see. Only the humble will enter the kingdom of God. Only the humble. It won't be the prideful. It won't be the arrogant. It will be the humble. Only the humble will enter the kingdom of God. Last week, Brandon preached for us Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 8. And it is a story, uh, a parable, about a persistent widow. And a widow who, uh, over and over and over, goes to this judge and pleads with this judge until finally this godless judge grants her her wish because he was tired of her coming to her over and over and over. What Jesus teaches us through this parable is that how much more will God answer your prayers when you come to him? That widow understood the desperation of her situation, so she went to God in prayer. He's continuing the thought process here. He's continuing to show us that we are in a place of desperation, and this is how we ought to pray. So, starting in verse 9, read with me. He also told us this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breath, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called to, the, to them, them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. All right, let's, let's look at this text. Let's begin to take it apart. And so here he's telling a parable. Uh, again, and we've, talked, we've had a lot of parables lately. Uh, a parable is just a simple story that's going to tell us a profound truth. It's going to take a story that's going to use really kind of worldly, everyday terms to show us something profound and spiritual. It's going to show us and tell us a spiritual story. And so that's, that's what he's doing. His audience, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So... They're, they're contemptuous to these other people. They think that they're self-righteous. Now, what do we know? He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the religious people. He's talking to Jewish people. And he's, he's been talking to them. He's no longer going into the synagogue to preach. He's out in the streets and the highways and the byways, and he's preaching. But he's preaching to a people who are a self-righteous people. And he's letting them know, like there's a boldness in Jesus' proclamation here. Now, he, he tells this story, and he starts with two men. Um, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, these would be people that there as first century humans would have really well under, understood these two groups of people. Now, for us, it's going to take some work. Um, Pharisee, that was their group of people. It's who he's talking to. It's their crowd. So um, they're going to hear Pharisee, and they're going to they're think, ah, all right, one of us. They're going to think good thoughts about them. But at the same time, they're going to say tax collector, and there's going to be pretty negative thoughts. Now, I get it. We don't like the tax collector either, right? Anybody like, anybody like the tax collector? Anybody like paying taxes? No, no one pays taxes. I don't even want you to make you think about that. Don't fast forward. Just stop right there. Uh, we, we used to have an IRS, uh, someone who worked for the IRS in our church. And they weren't an IRS, like, they weren't like an agent, but they worked at the IRS. And uh, they didn't want anybody to know that they worked for the IRS, <laughs> right? It's like, I'm not going to tell them that I work for the IRS, uh, because why wouldn't you tell somebody that you work for our government who collects taxes? We don't like taxes. But it wasn't the same thing. Um, in, in fact, it, it was way, way worse. Uh, and that, that's the reality. Uh, the tax collector, some, sometimes called a publican, um, they, they basically... Uh, were tax collectors for hire. The Roman government was charging 
uh, the, the Jewish people uh, attacked, and they had different, different people within their government, centurions or whatever, who were responsible for areas, responsible for collecting taxes. And so they would go in this area, and they would hire uh, somebody who lived there as this to be their job. And so uh, tax collectors were, because they were in places where Jewish people lived, they were Jewish people. And for them to go to work for the, gov the Roman government kind of meant like, okay, you're turning your back on your people, and you're turning your back also on your religion, because some of the things that they're having you do, your religion's telling you not to do. And so the government would have a tax rate, and they would hire this tax collector, and he could then up the tax rate. That's how he made his money. He had to get above and beyond. So, you know, rather than taxing you at... At, you know, 15%, he's going to figure out how to get it to 20, to 25, to, to 30, uh, up to 50%. He's going to figure out how he can tax you and how they lie about it and, and everything else. So they were, they were very, they were, they were crooked and they were hated. I think for us, if we want to like think culturally, like uh, what this person would be like, it's one of the things like that's scum of the earth, a, a, a drug dealer. Uh, a pimp, something like that, something, some, some, some person that like morally is just absolutely corrupt, like someone who's doing human sex trafficking, right? That, think about that. That's like kind of the, the person. So he tells this story, and, and we automatically, as soon as we say a Pharisee and a tax collector, right, in those terms, like the Pharisees, they're like us. The tax collector is horrible. They're wretched. That's what we get going in this story. So, let's look, at, let's look at the first one. Let's look at the Pharisee. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers are even like this tax collector. God, look at me. I fast twice a week. That's way more than that's required. You're not required to fast even once a week. And I, ref I, I do. Every Tuesday, every Thursday, I fast. Not just at certain festivals at certain times. Look at me, God. I fast. I give tithes of all that I get. Every bit of income I tithe on, so much so in my garden, down to the herbs and spices. I tithe on it all. Here's my first big idea. Self-righteousness exalts one's self. Look who he's exalting. Is he really praying to God? Or is he praying to himself? Is he boasting of his own righteousness and his own goodness? Who is he exalting but himself? Look at me. I believe my own hype. I, I believe my own goodness. I'm trusting in my own goodness. You know, it is easier to see the speck in someone else's eye than the log in your own. Right? That's scripture. We see it. And we see it right there in the text. I thank God that I'm not like these other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Or, or like one of these tax selectors. We easily can fall into this trap. We easily fall into the trap where we don't reflect on our own lives, but we look at everybody else's life. 
We, we, we fall into the place, if I could just get everybody else on my level, then the world would be a better place. Man, I think this happens in marriage. I think this is easy to see in marriage. Like, you can so get focused on your spouse's shortcomings and failings that you don't look in the mirror. You don't see your own. You don't come to it from a, a place of humility. We think highly of ourselves and lowly of others. So easy. So easy for us to get focused on other shortcomings and other people's sin just so we can avoid being confronted by our own. Now listen to this other. Listen, listen to this tax collector, the one that they would have heard. This is the scum of the earth. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His heart posture is totally different. His heart posture is, is, is one of humility. It's like, I'm begging for mercy. It's not look at how good I am. It's look, I need your help, God. I, 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 I need your mercy. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Meaning... The self-righteous one. He's not justified. He's, he's not forgiven of his sin. Ultimately, this man's not saved. This man does not know the Lord. And the one who the tax collector would, would be. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's my next big idea. Humility exalts Christ. Humility exalts Christ. That's what it does. When God brings you to a place of being broken over your sin, it is then that you can be saved. It's a bold statement. What I'm telling you is that if you're not never come to a place of being broken over your sin, you will never be saved. You see, just like the widow last week, one must be Aware, They must realize the desperation of their situation. They must realize that I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I am a wretch. My righteousness, as Isaiah says, is filthy as rags. And those weren't any nice rags. Those were the, the actual, what he, he was saying was as filthy as a minstrel cloth. Right? It, it's a nasty rag. That's my righteousness. You may be thinking to yourself, Zach, you, you sure do like to get on that hobby horse and talk about our sin. And you sure do like to talk about how we're unrighteous, no good for nothing, dirty dog sinners. Well, yeah, not really. Um, I don't really enjoy that. Uh, but I, I'm, I am con convinced, convicted that we ought to preach expositionally through Scripture, verse by verse by verse, and it seems like Jesus sure does talk about it a lot. You might be going, you know, Zach, when we talk about sin and we talk about our, our, our you know, not being righteous and we talk about how desperate we are, like, it hurts my self-esteem. Yeah, that's the point. The point is that our self-esteem would be crushed. That we would look at our self-esteem and go, oh, I can't. 
The only thing I bring to my salvation is the sin that I need to be saved from. The only thing that I, I, I bring to the, the, the table is the need for Jesus. It's not my righteousness. It's not my works. It's, it's not me standing up going, oh God, I think you I'm not like other men. It's not, not a standing there going, oh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes for all. I, 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 go, to, I go to church at least twice a month. I, I, I give. I X, Y, Z. I do it all. I'm there. Everything that I need to do, I check those boxes. It's not that. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a place of humility. It's humility that exhausts Christ. You have to humble yourself to get to the point that you see who Christ is. That you see who you are and that you see who Christ is and that Christ loves you anyway. I remember I was six years old, almost seven years old. In a little country church, hearing a man, Pastor Stevens, preach. It's a Sunday night. And I remember there, almost a seven-year-old, six-year-old, for the first time, feeling convicted of my sin. He was talking about how we were sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. And that no one is righteous, not even one. And, you know, have you ever told a lie? Mm-hmm. Have you ever done this? Yep. Have you ever stolen? Yeah, I stole some stuff from my sister. Like she had some Skittles and I was a sucker for Skittles and I stole them. You know, like I, I had the list. And I remember realizing that I was a sinner and that I could not save myself. And I remember that night as he presented the gospel and as he did an altar call, I remember I gripped the back of that seat and I did not move a muscle and I held on to my sin. I was not ready to make Jesus Lord of my life. I understood I was a sinner, but I wasn't willing to let it go. And man, I struggled and I wrestled uh, for, for, you know, from almost, almost seven until the time I was eight and a half. And I remember being eight and a half years old and going, you know what? I don't want to be. I, I, I don't want to be separated from Christ. I, I want a relationship with Christ. I, I want to repent of my sin. I want to follow Lord. I don't want to be Lord of my life. I, 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 I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. And I, I'll tell you what. I gave my life to Christ. And I, I, I was baptized uh, a few weeks later. And I told the world, man, hey, I'm following Jesus. And I, I, at that point, I said, hey, I want to exalt Christ with my life. Now, not that it wasn't a struggle. Not that, not that um, I got it perfect. My childlike faith started with a place of realizing I was a sinner and that I needed to repent and trust the Savior. Do you know that my childlike faith, what I felt, when I came to faith, wasn't a lot different than what happened to the Apostle Paul. It still started with a place of repentance. Think about the Apostle Paul. Here Paul is, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a 
Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of, of Jews, a persecutor of Christian who knew every dot and iota of the law, who could stand there and say, I'm glad I'm not like these other ones. Who could say, man, look, I, I fast, I tithe, I do this, I do that. And there he is on the road to Damascus, on the road to round up Christians to persecute them, people who've left the, the Jewish faith. And, and what happens when he meets the Lord? And the Lord comes to him, and the light shines on him, and he goes, oh, Lord, he cries out. What would you have me do? And the scales fall off of his eyes. And what does Paul have to do? He has to repent. He repents, and he believes. It's the same thing that was required of me, and that's the same thing that's required of you. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Timothy. He says this, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Here's the Lord overflowed for me. Here I am, a persecutor of Christians. Someone who's greatly sinned against the Lord. Someone who just, just moments before his point of conversion thought he was righteous. But no, he was self-righteous. He was smug. He was arrogant. And the Lord, not because he loved the Lord, not because his works of righteousness, but because the Lord loved him. The Lord intervened in his life. And the grace of our, our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love. Through Christ Jesus. In, in Christ Jesus. And so this is what he's saying. Years later, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Just like the tax collector who's crying out. Who's saying to God... Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. So is Paul. So is Paul on the road to Damascus, crying out, knowing that he sinned against God, but yet the grace of God overflowed for him. He received mercy for this reason. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel, that while we are sinners... That while we're rebellious in our hearts towards God, but while we don't do what we know we ought to do, the Bible says that's sin. That God sent his son for us anyway. That he was merciful to us anyway. That he sent Jesus Christ to, to love us, to, to save us. And this is the beauty of understanding the reality of your sin and the desperation of your situation. You humble yourself. The hum, the the. You're, you're humbled so that you will exalt Christ, so that you'll understand that Christ is the name that is above every name, that you'll understand the goodness of his mercy and grace, that you'll understand the depth of his love for you. It's not that he's just loving someone who's earning their favor. He's, earning, he's loving someone who did not earn their favor. 
He's loving someone unconditionally. That's how he loves you. And so that means, like, this is why this is healthy. This is why it's what's best for us is to understand our sinfulness and so we can understand the love of Christ and we can understand who it is that Christ now has made us to be. For I am a new creation in Christ. The old man has gone. The new man has come. The man that once lived has died. He was buried in baptism and he's raised to walk in a new way of life. He is now a child of God. He is uh, like, like with the, the uh, elected. He's chosen. He's cared for. He is, he is loved. That's why. That's why the, the humble exalt Christ. Because they see their, their spiritual condition and they see the Savior that comes. And so, man, it's only going to be the humble that get to enter in the kingdom of God. Now, I believe this, this parable kind of ends and we kind of take a turn. But, but I believe this is all still connected. Still Luke showing us how Jesus was constantly saying, this is how we're going to come into the kingdom through humility. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. That was stupid. The disciples did a lot of stupid things. This would be the last one. So Jesus now rebukes the disciples. Jesus called them to him saying, Let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. It's the, it's the, it's the children that the kingdom of God is going to belong to. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. Here's my next big idea. Is that humility is having a right view of Jesus and a right view of oneself. That's what biblical humility is. It is, it is not thinking lowly of yourself or less of yourself. It's not toting around the weight and the burden of your sin. It's not that. It's seeing that who you are in Christ as sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. It's having a right view. And as he's telling us this, it's because kids get it right. So often, when we, we talk about a childlike faith, it's not a blind faith, but it's a faith that realizes it cannot do it itself. It's kids that realize, at, at, at eight years old, I'm realizing, wait a second, my self-righteousness isn't working. I can't be good on my own accord. I keep messing up. I trust Jesus. I, I believe Jesus is who he says he is. I believe that Jesus rose on the third day. When he says, let the little children come to me, man, I'll tell you what, he does. He still is. Do you know that when you poll... Adults, and this, is, this has been true for a long time, when you poll adult Christians, the, the latest poll I saw was 77%, it's typically around 80%, that 77% that of, of adults that are Christians came to faith before they were 18 years old. It matters that we say to the little children, they let the little children come to me at, at our church. When we say that we're a next generation church plant, we want to focus on the next generation. It starts with the littles. The littles have always been so important. 
let the little ones come to me. It's because they can come with humility. Next week, we're going we're gonna to talk about the rich young ruler. And it's the thing that the rich young ruler wasn't able to do. He wasn't willing to walk away. He wasn't to, to set his pride aside, to thinking that he could save himself. He wasn't willing to, in humility, lay it all down and follow Jesus. And so this, this, is the, this is what he's telling us here. Humility is having a right view of Jesus and a right view of oneself. And I want to tell you something. When you do that, when you understand who you are, and who you are in Christ, it brings a healthy place in your soul. It brings you to a place of you don't want to worship yourself, which leads to destruction, that you want to worship Jesus. You want to worship the one who is worthy, the one who is a, the name that is above every name. You want to worship the, the radiance of the glory of God, the firstborn of all creation. You want to submit your life to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is a decision that you will never regret. Today, if you're here, and maybe you have been in this place of self-righteousness, thinking that, that you can earn favor with God, that you can be good enough, that you can save yourself, I... I Maybe today you'll realize you can't. You know, sometimes we pray prayers that seem humble, but they're really just false humility. And maybe that's you. Maybe you really, you, you, can, you know how to pray the prayer, you know how to walk the walk and talk the talk, but maybe on the inside you're looking around going, I'm glad I'm not like that one or that one or that one. Maybe today you'd say, Lord, I want to repent. I want to get the log out of my own eye. I want to start deflecting. Stop deflecting and I want to repent of the sin in my life. And maybe today you're like, maybe you're like the tax collector. Maybe you think that you're so bad that you can't be saved. Oh, friend, I'm here to tell you, you're not. Christ came to save you. If he can save me, he can save you. If he can, if he can save the Apostle Paul, friend, he can save you. You know, I, I put some time into thinking about this this week, about the different kind of different social classes. And maybe, maybe you hear this sermon and you think, man, it is the, the Pharisee that's sitting up there all high and mighty on their throne, looking down their nose at everybody else. And here I am in a lower class, and I'm glad I'm not like them. I want you to know we all do it. Middle class, we're probably the worst. Middle class, we're probably like, psh, psh, right? We just look down our nose at everybody. I'm glad I'm not rich. I'm glad I'm not poor. Man, we got to repent of that. We've got to repent of looking at other people's sin, and we've got we've to look at ourselves. Today, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, come to him with childlike faith. Humble yourself. Realize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that you cannot save yourself. Humble yourself before the Lord. Maybe you've been in, your, you've been in church your whole life. And maybe you've, 
you've, you, maybe you're realizing, like, I'm a lot like the Pharisee. Humility says, come to the Lord. Place your faith and trust in him. Oh, but man, I've been in church my whole life. I was baptized when I was a kid, but man, I don't think I was a believer. Humility says, come to the Lord. Don't trust in your own works of righteousness. Trust in his. Humble yourself before the Lord. Have the right view of Jesus. Today, our, our response is going to be the taking of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper represents Jesus' body, that's the, the bread that was broken for us. And the, the juice or the wine uh, represents his blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And we get specific instructions on how to take the Lord's Supper, how we ought to do it. It's a time of examination. It's a time of repentance. Listen to what Paul, the Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you uh, drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink uh, the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The ordinance of the Lord's Supper or communion is us proclaiming that it is the Lord's death. That saves us. It is proclaiming that I am a sinner and Christ came to save me. This is going, I cannot save myself. It is Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection that saves. But we're told uh, some specific ways to do it. There's guardrails. There's instructions put here. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. It's a, it's a worthy manner. It's, it's worthy when it's a believer. This is for believers. This is for people who've placed their faith and trust in Christ. This is for people who've been obedient in baptism. They've told the world through baptism, hey, I'm following you. And when we get up and, and, and do this in a minute, no one's watching. No one's keeping count of who takes baptism, uh, who takes communion, and, and who doesn't. So if you're not a believer, it'd be kind of weird that like, you're saying that you're symbolically drinking a man's blood. But it's also more than that. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That means if you're holding on to sin and you're unwilling to repent, if you're holding on to self-righteousness, if, if you're clinging to your sin, if you think that you're good enough on your own, whatever those circumstances are, he's calling us to repentance, to examine oneself and to repent, to examine oneself and turn from. He even so says that, that this is the reason that some are weak and some are ill because they've brought judgment on themselves because they're doing this in, in sinning and holding on to their sin. So as we sing here in a second, what you're going to do is I, I want you to pray. And I want you to examine yourself. And I want you to stop looking at your neighbor and look and reflect on your heart. And where you are in your walk with the Lord. 
And I want you to get right with God. The, the idea isn't that you cling to it. The idea that is you repent from it. That you turn from it. And you run to Jesus. So Father, we come to you, Lord. We come to you uh, today. As we take communion, the, your body being hung on the cross, your blood being shed for our sins. Father, we come thankful that while we were sinners, while we were far from you, while we were rebelling in our own hearts, that you came, that you, Lord, you sent your son Jesus Christ to, to come and die on the cross for us, to love us anyway. And Lord, we we pray today that we would be a people that humble ourselves and exalt your name. That, that we aren't about our own brand. That we aren't about our own hype. That we're not about the, the persona that we put forth on social media. That, that No, it's more than that. That we are about who we are in you. Sinners saved by grace. Sinners that have been recipients of mercy. Children chosen, loved, cared for, and called and sent to the very ends of the earth. And so, Father, today as we respond, Lord, would you move and work in our hearts? Would you bring us to a place of repentance? Would you let us see the desperation of our situation? And Lord, in our humility, may we exalt your name. The name that is above every name. The name that, that at being said the name, every knee and every uh, tongue will confess that you are Lord. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to sing and stand and sing. And as you've repented, as you've prayed, as you've dealt with the Lord, when you're ready... I want you to get up and come to the center, come through, grab one, and, and go back to your seat, open it up, take out the bread, take the bread, and as you put your mind on the things of Christ, on his, his body on the cross, crush that bread between your teeth, and then turn it over and peel back the top and get ready, and we will drink, uh, uh, we'll drink of the juice together.